Well, let's turn to John chapter 9 this morning. John chapter 9, where we will meet an individual who discovers Jesus' true identity through incredible faith. Now, you probably don't believe that I can actually preach through a whole chapter of 41 verses in one sermon, but I am here to prove you wrong. I did actually preach this chapter back in 2018. I went back in my notes and looked, and between Matthew and Romans, we had a little short series on the gospel, and we did look at John chapter 9, but hopefully that's far enough back that uh, you have forgotten all of my mistakes, because in looking at it again, I thought, you know what, there's more here than I got the first time through, so hopefully this will be instructive for us today. John 9, though, is such a tightly constructed literary unit that it actually is quite impossible to preach through it in pieces. You really do have to sort of keep the whole narrative in mind. This is all one story. If I can say it this way, a 41-verse pericope. That's a long pericope. Now, on the surface, it's a story of Jesus healing a blind man. But ultimately, it's a revelation of Jesus' true identity. So let's observe the setting. Jesus is still in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He has been preaching in the Temple Mount. In chapter 8, Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. He has also claimed God's name, Yahweh. I am. In fact, he did so three times in chapter 8, in verses 24, 28, and 58. Look at verse 58 of John chapter 8. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am Yahweh. The Jews, infuriated by these claims, seek to murder him. Verse 59, though, tells us that Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That temple complex was massive, milling with thousands of people. So Jesus disappears into the crowds. But as we approach now chapter 9, it's really crucial that we hold on to these two truths. Again, Jesus has just called himself the light of the world, Yahweh. Well, how would you know he's telling the truth? Answer, John 9. And second... Jesus is exiting the temple. Read chapter 8 and verse 59 together with chapter 9 and verse 1. There's no chapter break in the original. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. The temple was the most trafficked area, not only in Jerusalem, but in the whole of Israel. The temple gates were strategic locations where beggars and infirm people could come and look for alms. But there's more to this location, as we will see in just a moment. But again, keep those two contexts in mind. Jesus has just said, I am the light of the world, Yahweh, and now he's leaving the temple. And that brings us again to verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? 
Now, this blind man sitting there at the temple gate has never seen Jesus perform a miracle. Right? Right? He's blind from birth. All right? He has never actually even seen Jesus. And that's crucial. Now, Jesus' disciples betray a misguided cultural assumption. The Jews allege that a malady from birth indicated that one's parents engage in some grievous sin, probably something like immorality. Or less likely, they also believed a child could actually commit a sin in the womb that would produce a physical malady at birth. Either way, the disciples are mistaken. Verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned in the womb, or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So Jesus exposes their false dilemma. In the perfect will of God, this man was born blind in order to display the mighty works of God. Of who? Of God. So whatever happens to this man, this is the work of God. Jesus continues in verse 4, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, here it is again, I am the light of the world. In verse 4, verse 5, connect us to chapter 8, again where Jesus has just said he is the light of the world. Well, how would you know that? Answer, verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So friends, if Jesus can open the eyes of the blind, might he actually be the light of the world? John seems to be setting us up for that possibility. Maybe he really is the light of the world. Now, let's observe four truths about this miracle. First of all, more attention is given to this miracle than to any other in the New Testament, with the exception of the raising of Lazarus. By my count, of the 37 instances of specific miracles, an average of nine verses is devoted to each. This miracle account occupies 41 verses. That's a lot of material given to just one miracle. Secondly, this is one of very few miracles initiated by Jesus. In most instances, people come to Jesus looking for healing, whether for themselves or for someone else. In this case, Jesus initiates the miracle. This really is highly, highly unusual. In fact, as the chapter proceeds, it's clear the blind man does not know who Jesus is when he first touches his eyes. That's significant. When you consider the development of this man's faith, he doesn't know at first who touched him. 
Thirdly, this is the only miracle in which Christ does not heal immediately. Now, on one occasion, Jesus healed a blind man through a two-step process. All right? There was a delay, and there was a partial healing and a full healing. But here, Jesus touches the man, and nothing happens. He has touched other people before, or they've touched him, and immediately there's a miracle. In this case, he touches the man, and nothing happens. He does not see until he goes away and washes in the pool of Siloam. And number four, this is the only miracle in which Christ asked the recipient to accomplish a difficult task. Don't forget about Jesus' location. There's a reason I emphasize that. He is passing out of the temple. From there, he sends the man down to the pool of Siloam. Well, why? Why would he do this? There were actually closer pools of water. The pool of Bethesda was much closer. The pool of Israel was adjacent to the temple complex. Archaeologists have recently discovered large mikvah, or ritual baths, right at the base of the Temple Mount. Why not just send him there? Why not just open his eyes? Instead, Jesus sends the man across town. The Pool of Siloam lies in the lower regions of the city of Jerusalem. It's down near the confluence of the Hinnom and Kidron Valleys. And only with some difficulty could a blind man make his way down the slope and into the pool. Archaeologists have actually located two pools in this region, and the lower pool was likely the pool in use in Jesus' day. After making his way down the slope from the Temple Mount, down all those steps, the blind man actually had to ascend another three flights of steps to get all the way down into the pool. This was a challenge for a blind person. So those four factors really draw our attention to the incredible faith of this man who has actually never seen Jesus. Again, the man was not even initially looking for Jesus, but he had enough initial faith, get this, to believe the voice of the one who touched him. And he goes off to the pool of Siloam. Now, remember the argument that Jesus has just had with the Jews back in chapter 8. Back in chapter 8, in verse 31, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my true disciples. Verse 37, he said, My word finds no place in you. Or verse 43, Jesus says, You cannot bear to hear my word. Well, contrast... Those Jews who refused to hear his word with this man who has never laid eyes on Jesus, he's never seen him, but he obeys his word and goes off to the pool of Siloam. Now, I have a question. How does this miracle demonstrate that Jesus is Yahweh, the light of the world? We've got the context, but how does it really demonstrate that he is Yahweh, the light of the world. After all, Moses and Elijah and others performed miracles. 
Was there some further uniqueness to this particular miracle? The answer is yes. And that's why John devotes 41 verses to it. The answer will come for us as we actually watch the blind man's initial faith just blossom through the remainder of the chapter. In verses 8 through 34, the Jews will stage some four interrogations with a view toward denying ultimately that the miracle actually happened. And to properly interpret this section, you need to remember two things. First of all, Jesus disappears. He's gone. He will not return until verse 35. Secondly, keep in mind the man has never seen Jesus. He's gone, and the man's never seen him. But guess what happens through four interrogations? Two things. The blind man's faith progressively discovers Jesus' true identity. Meanwhile, the Pharisee's sight progressively rejects Jesus' true identity. That's what's going on in the remainder of the chapter. So, let's take a look at the first interrogation, verses 8 through 12. The first interrogation involves, in verse 8, the neighbors. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. The man's eyes are now open, and that changes the whole look of his face. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. So here are the neighbors. They try to understand what happened. And they are divided over whether they've got the right guy. Is this truly the former blind man? The man, of course, knows who he is, so he insists, I am the man. Well, then, what happened to you? Explain it. All he knows at this point is the man called Jesus touched him and told him to go wash and be healed. At this point, the man only has a name. Jesus was actually a common name. Archaeologists have identified at least 70, 70 contemporaries of Jesus with the same name. There were likely hundreds more. So when the man refers to the man called Jesus, he's not saying, I know, Jesus of Nazareth, he's the one who healed me. He's just throwing out this name, this man Jesus. At this point, he's not really much of a witness of Jesus' true identity. And that leads us then to a second interrogation, this time with the Pharisees, which runs from verse 13 down through verse 17. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. Notice the word again. They know the story already. And he said to them, 
He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. So again, the Pharisees want to know what happened, although they already knew. The formerly blind man relates the story a second time. But many Pharisees find fault with Jesus. This is the old fault they keep going back to. He performed the miracle on the Sabbath. This is a pathetic charge. But at this point, a groundswell of popular support begins to build for Jesus. I mean, how can you condemn Jesus as as a sinner, as, as a Sabbath violator, when he's out there doing these miracles? So the Pharisees then asked the man, well, what's your opinion of Jesus? And his answer at the end of verse 17 is, he is a prophet. Now, the man still has not seen Jesus, but on more reflection, he realizes this isn't just another man called Jesus. Whoever this is, he's got to be a prophet. That much is clear. His faith grows. But the Pharisees aren't about to allow a groundswell of popular support to build for Jesus. They can't have this. And that brings us then to a third interrogation, this time with the man's parents. Verses 18 through 23. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And here's an explanation of their reticence. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So at this stage, the parents identify the man who had been born blind. He is their son. But they refuse to state who healed him because the Jews have already agreed. Their minds are already made up. If anyone confesses Jesus to be the Christ, he is to be expelled, driven out of the synagogue, disenfranchised. And friends, that's just blatant bias. Bless Pascal refers to it as contempt prior to examination. Your minds are already made up. The Jews rejected Jesus before they even completed the investigation of the miracle. So fearful of reprisals, the parents just say, well, ask him. He's old enough, ask him. And that brings us then to a fourth interrogation in verses 24 through 34. The Pharisees at this point summon the formerly blind man once again. And they begin to probe him with leading questions the way a clever prosecuting attorney tries to ensnare a witness. 
You need to read verse 24 with an air of smugness. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. We're going to give you another chance to tell the truth. And this time you can glorify God like we do, of course. As for this Jesus, he's a sinner. He's no Messiah. Again, they've already reached a verdict. and They have no interest in the truth. Now, the man still does not fully comprehend who Jesus is, but he retorts with growing frustration in his voice, verse 25. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Now, two things are evident. At this point, the man still hasn't gotten it all figured out. Jesus is a prophet, yes. Whether a sinner or not, he couldn't say. Again, he's never met Jesus. It's hard to imagine that healing on the Sabbath is a crime, but, I mean, how could you say? I mean, Moses was a sinner. He did miracles. At this point, he just doesn't have it figured out. But the man also points out the obvious. Here's the obvious. I was blind. Now I see. My eyes are wide open. Can't you see it? Whoever this Jesus is, one thing is dogmatically certain he opened my eyes. Maybe you Jews should admit your bias against him. Well, at this point, the narrative gets comical. The Pharisees ask him yet again in verse 26, What did he to you? The man becomes agitated. Verse 27, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? And then with enormous sarcasm, the man says, Do you also want to become his disciples? Of course the Pharisees do not intend to become his disciples. But his question must have just pierced like a dagger. Now, the man's frustration is understandable. This man, Jesus, whoever he is, did me enormous good. And all you want to do is figure out a way to condemn him. What is your problem? The man can see right through their duplicity. And at this point, he's having a good laugh at their expense. So the Pharisees, as you can imagine, become indignant. Verse 28, and they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple which actually wasn't even true because he'd never met Jesus. Then with an air of haughty self-righteousness, they claim, we are disciples of Moses, which was hardly true either. Now in verse 29, they assert that God spoke to Moses. But as for this Jesus, they claim, we don't know where he comes from. Now, this is really curious. If you recall from chapter 8, the Jews had earlier accused Jesus of being born in immorality. It also accused him of being a Samaritan. Well, doesn't that imply they know where he came from? Ironically, their statement in verse 29 undermines their dogmatic slanders in chapter 8. Again, how could they accuse him of being born a Samaritan or being born illegitimately if, in fact, they truly don't know where he comes from. I mean, you can't have it both ways. If you listen to a slanderer long enough, 
he will eventually contradict himself and undermine his own case, just as they just did. Now again, remember our question. How does this particular miracle demonstrate that Jesus is Yahweh, the light of the world? As of yet, we don't have an answer. But we are about to get one. But not from the Pharisees, whose sight drives them away from Jesus into blindness, but from the blind man whose faith drives him straight to Jesus. Now remember, the formerly blind man has never seen Jesus. That's crucial. He started with a name, Jesus. He figured out that Jesus was at least a prophet, And when the fourth interrogation commenced, he didn't know whether Jesus was a sinner or not. But he does know this, my eyes are open. And they're continually opening to Jesus' true identity. Watch what happens next. Verse 30. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Well, this man has suddenly discovered a new career as a defense attorney. He identifies what logicians call a non sequitur. That is, the conclusion doesn't follow from the premise. How can you conclude that Jesus is a sinner from the premise that he performed a miracle? That doesn't follow. God does not listen to sinners, much less go about performing miracles through people engaged in sin. So how are you concluding he's a sinner? And you can see he's already rethinking his idea about whether Jesus was a sinner or not. And I can only imagine the Pharisees must have just been furious at this point. They've reached that moment in the trial where the prosecutor's whole case just crumbles And everybody's looking at him like, you guys don't have a case, do you? What are you going to say next? The man just exposed their bias. They've got nothing at all on Jesus. And then suddenly, spontaneously, it all comes together for the formerly blind man. His eyes are now wide open. Look at verse 32. Never since the foundation of the world has it ever been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And friends, we just read one of the most remarkable theological insights in the entire New Testament from a man who had never laid eyes on Jesus. And why am I saying this? Well, would you observe three critical points? Number one, there was not a single instance of a congenitally blind person being healed in all the Old Testament. You will not find that miracle in the Old Testament. That's why he says, from the beginning of the world, this has never happened. Secondly, the Old Testament declares that Yahweh opens blind eyes. Listen to Psalm 146 and verse 8. The Lord, Yahweh, opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah also records three messianic passages in which we are told that Messiah will open the eyes of the blind. 
And number three, healing blindness was Christ's most common miracle. We have one example of it here, but it was, in fact, his most common miracle. The conclusion is obvious. Opening blind eyes was a unique miracle reserved through all the Old Testament, reserved exclusively for the performance of deity. When you see this miracle, you know God has come. It was a distinct messianic sign designed to convince you that Jesus was no mere Elijah or Moses or any other miracle worker. Jesus has got to be Yahweh, the I am, the light of the world. The blind man sees it, and the Pharisees are blind. And that is the ironic result of four interrogations. The the interrogators prove, through the interrogations, their own blindness. But beautifully, those same hostile interrogations lead the man straight to Christ. Over Christmas break, I read the testimony of a man named Neil Shinvey of his conversion to Christianity, and it reminds me a great deal of this passage. Neil Shinvey is a graduate of Princeton University and also the University of California, Berkeley, where he earned a Ph.D. in theoretical chemistry. Quite a brilliant man. He was formerly a professor at both Yale and at Duke University. And as a professor, he published more than 30 academic papers. And I read through the titles, and I didn't understand half of what those papers were even about. But I was very, very curious to hear about how he came to Christ. He says, as a student at Princeton, he took a course on the historical origins of Christianity that was known as, quote, the Faith Buster. You know, Princeton used to be a good school before it went apostate. So he takes this course on the historical origins of Christianity called the Faith Buster, where apparently you go in and you lose your faith. And the course drew upon the critical scholars, uh, Bart Ehrman. Ever heard of Bart Ehrman, one of the world's leading critics today? Elaine Pagels, the Jesus Seminar. And Shimbi says, at the conclusion of the course, I became a disciple of Jesus Christ. And he recognized that these people dismissed Christianity only because they presupposed that people's testimonies of conversions to Christianity were inherently false. That was their certain assumption. You just can't trust anybody who's converted to Christianity. Can't do that. Well, why not just grant that people's testimonies might be true? He said once he figured that out, it all came together for him. Well, that's what's going on here. Here are these Pharisees trying to convince them that Jesus is not the Messiah. And the man's like, oh yeah, you convinced me. He's the Messiah. Got it all figured out. It's really quite wonderful. Now, let's finish out the chapter by focusing on these two different responses to Jesus Christ. First of all, let's consider the Pharisees. Clearly, the entire inclination of their hearts is toward disbelief. Notice the verdict that they passed on the man in verse 34. They answered him, You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. Well, did you notice the ironic contradiction? The Pharisees are perpetuating the same culturally mistaken notion the disciples had back in verse 2. 
Remember that? When they say he was born in utter sin, they were assuming the same thing the disciples assumed back in verse 2, that he was born with this malady because of his parents' sin or some sin that he committed in the womb. You're born a sinful person. But actually, ironically, in making that assertion, they have to assume the man staring at them was born blind. And they are too blind to see their own folly. They actually admit the very truth they tried to disprove through their interrogations. And they can't see it. Secondly, we have this blind man. And clearly the entire inclination of his heart is toward belief. He obeys Jesus. He accomplishes a difficult task. And yet he doesn't even know who Jesus is. And through the progress of four interrogations, that little mustard seed of faith that he has at the beginning flowers into a great tree. And notice what happens when Jesus, at long last, where you been, Jesus? At long last, he comes back on the scene. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Well, the man, again, doesn't know it's Jesus because he's never seen him. He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And notice the spontaneous response. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. This man's faith is truly marvelous. He obeys before he ever laid eyes on Jesus. He stumbles down to the pool of Siloam. He realizes that Jesus is at least a prophet. Then maybe he's a sinner, but actually maybe he's not a sinner. And then suddenly he recognizes that Jesus must have come from God, like light into a dark world. And now he's out there searching for the object of his faith. And Jesus suddenly reappears, and his faith just instantly reaches out and lays hold on Jesus. Lord, I believe. Now, would you notice something else that's really, really important about Jesus' verdict in verse 37? This is is just like really cool. Can I use that word? This is incredible. Jesus says in verse 37, Look at these words, you have seen him. That is a perfect active indicative in Greek. And then he says, it is he that is speaking to you, a present active participle. In other words, Jesus is referring to something that happened earlier and something is happening currently. Something happened earlier, you have seen him, in something that's happening currently, he is speaking to you. You've already seen him. And even now, he is the one speaking to you. Two different time frames are in view here. So Jesus is essentially saying, you already saw him before this conversation began. You're saying, well, wait a minute. The man's blind. He didn't see Jesus. And Jesus just now showed up. When did the man see Jesus? When did the man see Jesus? Jesus is recognizing that man's initial faith. 
He had sight even before his physical eyes were opened. That's what Jesus is recognizing. He saw even when he was blind. He did not understand fully who Jesus was, but he had sufficient faith to get him down in the pool of Siloam. And that initial faith blossomed into a theologically robust faith by the time Jesus Jesus met him. So now observe Jesus' final verdict on these two responses. Verse 39. For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. Well, that's the blind man. But keep reading. And those who see may become blind. And this is an obvious allusion to the Pharisees, and they know it. And that's why in verse 40 they ask him with a sneer, Are we also blind? Well, what's the answer? Yes. And that's why Jesus concludes in verse 41, Your guilt remains. Now, friends, can we just really apply this passage by turning to John chapter 20, where we're going to meet a disciple of Jesus Christ who is universally remembered for his doubt. And it may be that you're here today and you said, you know, you say, I followed Christ for a long time, but I don't have quite the faith of this blind man. Maybe you're troubled by this. You wish you had this sort of marvelous faith, but the fact is, many, many Christians don't quite have this sort of robust faith upon first meeting Jesus. The truth is that we all come at Jesus with some doubt, or many of us do, I should say. But I want to think about Thomas in the context of this blind man. Would you consider four facts about him? Thomas, first of all, is one of the chosen 12 apostles. Secondly, he has heard Jesus predict his own resurrection three recorded times. Thirdly, Thomas has actually seen Jesus resurrect people from the grave. And fourthly, Thomas has given, was given power to perform miracles. In fact, surprisingly, in Matthew 10, Jesus gave the disciples, understand this, power to raise the dead. It's possible Thomas has actually raised somebody from the grave. We don't know that, but Jesus gave him that power. That's astonishing. So clearly, Thomas has every advantage over the blind man. But he's not prepared to embrace the resurrection when he hears about it from the other disciples. So verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Well, Thomas's reaction to missing the resurrection appearance is off by 180 degrees from the blind man. In fact, Thomas is here acting just like one of those Pharisees. He is deliberately unwilling to believe. But I want to know, for the sake of doubters, 
What really is at the heart of his doubt? Well, clearly, Thomas has an unhealthy demand for experiential proof. I need more experiences. Now, this blind man has never laid eyes on Jesus, right? He's never seen Jesus, but he expresses faith by leaving and going and washing. His faith gave him sight even before his eyes were opened. The blind man needed no experiential scientific verification. He just obeyed. But Thomas demands to see and touch the body. In fact, Thomas demands to have the identical experience that the other disciples had. The blind man demanded nothing, not even to see Jesus. So friends, Thomas is like that believer who thinks that he or she needs somebody else's testimony. And that may be you. Yours isn't quite glamorous enough. Got to have somebody else's stellar testimony, right? You hear some people give their testimony and it's just like, wow, all the twists and turns and the rescue that God accomplished and delivered me from alcohol addiction and whatever it is, and I got saved as a child at five. Oh, doesn't seem so glamorous. You ever struggle with that? Well, do we really need somebody else's testimony? You know, what matters is not that you have somebody else's experience. What matters is that you have the same Christ. Friends, let me be extremely precise. Okay, I am not claiming there's no empirical proof of the resurrection. That's a double negative, sorry, but I couldn't figure out how to say it. Let me say it again. I am not claiming there's no empirical proof of the resurrection. There is, and there's lots of it. Thomas actually had the testimony of ten eyewitnesses. Apostolic testimony, no less. But I am saying this. Experiential proof should never usurp the necessity of faith. If God gives you experiences, wonderful. But experiential proof should never usurp the necessity of faith. The Pharisees witnessed numerous miracles and still disbelieved. Now observe the sequence. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. All the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and touch my hands and put out your hand and place it on my side. And do not disbelieve, but believe. And I can only imagine this experience was unnerving for Thomas. Jesus had heard every word of his denial. I heard you, Thomas. And so Jesus comes along and says, Okay, complete your experiment. Touch me. Go ahead. Collect your evidence and stop disbelieving. But what is Jesus doing? He is actually exposing Thomas's true problem. Thomas's doubt was, in fact, very subtle. Follow this very carefully. Thomas shifted the object of his faith from Jesus to his experiences of Jesus. He shifted the object of his faith from Jesus to his experiences of Jesus. 
And friends, when you put your faith in experience, you have to just keep feeding that fire. But the blind man made Jesus the object of his faith. He did not employ, he did not enjoy, rather, multiple miracles and experiences of Jesus. Only demand one more, and one more, and one more. One miracle was sufficient. And he just latched on to Jesus from the moment that he saw him. So Thomas lets an unhealthy desire for more experiences of Jesus to crowd out his belief in Jesus. And we can all do that. I've got to have one more experience, and I've got to have this emotional high, and I've got to have this person's testimony over here. Oh, that was great, what God did for you. Oh, he hasn't done that for me. Oh, maybe I'm not a believer. You see? We can put our faith in experiences of Jesus rather than Jesus himself. Well, would you notice how Thomas backs down at this point? Apparently, he doesn't really need to touch the body after all. Instead, he offers a clear declaration of Christ's deity. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Well, at this point, his faith shifts back from his experiences to Jesus himself. You are my God. Friends, Jesus is not quite done with Thomas. What Jesus says next is imminently relevant to every doubter in the room. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus exposes Thomas again for shifting the object of his faith from Jesus to his experiences of Jesus. And Jesus says, blessed is the man, blessed is the man who believes. Without demanding more experiential empirical validations, blessed is the man who can just go out and believe without seeing. And can you think of a man like that? Well, we just saw him stumble into the pool of Siloam in belief. We saw him interpret a miracle in belief. We saw him face down his interrogators in belief. And we saw him lay hold on Jesus from the moment that he saw him in belief. Friends, Jesus is Yahweh, the light of the world. And although you have never seen him, can I invite you to make him the object of your faith? Shall we pray together? Father, we thank you for this delightful passage. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us in the matter of our own faith to just keep Jesus continually before us as the object of our faith. For believers here, Lord, like Thomas, who are tempted to doubt, Lord, we know that all through the history of the church, doubt has been an affliction of your people, but Lord, I pray that you would just turn our eyes back on the Jesus. May he be the object of our faith. We cannot save ourselves. Our emotions cannot save us. Our feelings cannot save us. The words that we verbalize cannot save us. As if it was all up to us. But we make Christ, again, the object of our faith. And for the unbeliever here, Lord, we pray that no one here 
would follow the path of the Pharisees and resist the work of your Spirit. Lord, we pray that anyone here today who has never embraced Christ might be given the faith of this blind man. That today might be the day that his or her eyes are opened to the truth. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen.